Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was XTC, but XTC with an E at the beginning, because I've got the huge pleasure to welcome founding member of XTC with an X, Terry Chambers here. And um, that was a montage of the material that uh, XTC with an E are playing. They've got forthcoming dates over in the US, which is rather exciting. And we'll be here to cover that, as well as the full gamut and history of XTC. A huge welcome, Terry. Hello, Jason. That's great. Well, I caught up with Colin Moulding a few years in the TCNI period and um, heard about the TCNI live dates. And it's great to see that you're keeping the flame alive in a live setting. Yeah, well... 
unfortunately, Colin, having done uh, half a dozen gigs with the TCNI thing, he didn't sort of feel comfortable about taking this thing any further than um, those half a dozen local gigs. Um, Steve Tilling and I, who's in the uh, XTC band with me at the present time, uh, had a good time doing it, and we decided that um, we'd put a lot of time and effort and work into that, and it seemed a shame just to leave it where it was. So we picked up the pieces of that and uh, continued to put a band together, which, um, you know, a few years later, we're still up and running, which is good. Yeah, and XTC in its original guys, a fantastic live act. And obviously with Andy stopping touring for about 40 years or so ago now, and the legacy of XTC just continuing to build over the yeah. years, there's a it's quite a pent-up need or demand to hear that music live. That's right. Well, Andy basically got burnt out. It's been pretty well documented over the years that um, – we we toured extensively for about five years, and um, on reflection, I think if if we'd have had more sympathetic management towards Andy's uh, health needs, that may not have have happened the way it turned out. Um, but um, you know, that's it's just 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 the way it sort of the cards were dealt in the end. Um, yeah, the rest is well documented, as I say. At the minute listening to a sample of the material that you're doing now it fits with the original xdc sound it, it complements very well yeah i mean i've always enjoyed playing in a rock band um which is what um our current band is i mean it's uh we don't play keyboards in this particular band it's more of a rock rocked out sort of way of uh, performing them and um i think in fairness to the xdc fans that um never got to see the original band live uh, we're doing quite a few of um, the later songs that I didn't even play on. So I think, I mean, that's something that we've decided to do because a lot of these songs have never, ever been played live before. So I think it would do the XTC, the band, an injustice if we didn't do some of the current stuff, which uh, is arguably possibly more <laughs> more favourable than some of the old stuff, you know. But um, we do a good cross-section of uh, Colin's songs and Andy's songs. Um, I mean, we basically, we do two one-hour sets. Um, unfortunately, some of the venues only allow us to play 245, so we've got to mix and match and chop things around slightly according to uh, curfew and all these sort of things that take place at different venues. But um, generally speaking, uh, Jason, we're trying to um, give it as broad a, a viewing as possible. And you've mentioned about being a, a rock band, but your roots as a drummer, I've read that bands like Led Zeppelin, Cream were inspirational to you in terms of starting to define your sound. Well, absolutely. I grew up uh, during the um, the heavy rock period, I guess. Um, that's what sort of floated my boat more so than uh, sort of like the earlier pop stuff, which uh, Colin and Andy were more Beatles, Rolling Stones, Kinks type fans. I mean, I, I, I love that stuff. But really what, what got me going was um, the heavier type of bands, you know, the Deep Purples, Thin Lizzy, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, those type of bands, uh, not to leave out Yes and, and Free, which I also enjoy immensely. So when um, when did you meet Colin and Andy? Was it just around the pubs of Swindon? 
Very much so, yeah. There was uh, a few pubs that uh, we used to frequent. Uh, we all used to go to uh, college gigs uh, in, in the Swindon area. And, um, you know, we enjoyed the same type of music. So there was a, a natural uh, magnetism there, I guess, um, at these live gigs. And uh, we sort of just got to know each other through that, really, and and uh, became apparent that... Um, Andy played guitar, Colin played bass, and I played drums, and uh, it just seemed to be a reasonable fit. So we, we in the end, um, I mean, Colin and Andy, in fairness, went to school together, so they knew each other anyway. But um, I sort of came in on the scene when they were looking for a drummer, and uh, I mean, I, I, I dare say I was probably, and still am, probably the worst musician of the lot of them, if, uh, if, I, no. if, I, if I use the term loosely. But uh, anyway... Yeah, we we all had a common interest, and um, that's where it all sort of began, really. And when you first played with Colin and Andy, because there's band members coming and going amongst your core and yeah. change of band names, what was the band name when you first were playing? Well, Andy had a band called Star Park. Um, that consisted of a guy called Dave Cartner who was playing guitar on the ba- in that band at a particular time, and there was a couple of not perhaps as dedicated as what Partridge particularly wanted. At that point in time, um, I think he got Colin involved in playing bass and Colin suggested that perhaps give me a go because the apparently the drummer was a little bit more unreliable in the original Star Park. And uh, luckily for me, I got the job. So Star Park basically was the first band I was involved with, uh, with, with Colin and Andy. We'll be covering next on on the podcast the song Star Park. Was that song originally around in the early days, or did that come later? It was um, pretty much uh, around the early time of 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 the band. I think it was one of Andy's earlier um, songs, and um, actually, uh, I think it's sort of uh, the first demo that I think you may or may not be playing is uh, by the Helium Kids, which was uh, the next name change after the Star Park thing, because Star Park basically was a different band. Right. I mean, we, we we sort of joined, Colin and I joined that band, but we probably thought that it was, and, and Andy agreed, I think, that uh, maybe it was time to sort of call this particular band something other than Star Park, because that was a different band. So we became the Helium Kids, and Star Park, is a song that uh, one of the songs that we we started to play, and we had a, a lead singer at that point in time called Steve Hutchins. Was that Pi? Because you recorded on a, a few occasions in in the the mid seventies, but by the time of the Helium Kids and and that song Star Park, I've read that that was actually a demo for Pi. Was that right? Um, Steve Hutchins had supposedly had some connections in London. Um, I'm not sure whether it's Pi or CBS Records, to be quite honest, uh, but we did get an opportunity to do some uh, a demo up there. And um, if that's the one that I'm thinking of, um, Dave Cartner, who was in the band um, at that particular point in time, refused to go to London to do that demo and take a day off of work. Uh, the rest of us Colin and Andy and myself all went to London and made a bit of a hash of the whole thing because they were, it was prepared as a four-piece band. And obviously to go there and do it as a three-piece, uh, you know, we'd probably come a little, come up a little bit short. And uh, as a result, I, I think it was either Pi or CBS didn't take us on. But uh, we certainly weren't ready for that anyway. There are no 
secrets in Star Park. Rendezvous to Peacock's call. I said I'd meet you after dark. Well, that new trip never Alright.
apart Maybe after darkness You mentioned CBS because it's written that by the time of of CBS that you um, recorded demo of Science Friction. So that was really when what people would recognise as XTC starts to come to the fore. Well, that was the first um, record that we recorded with John Leckie. I think that original version that you're referring to was probably recorded by a guy called Nicky Graham, who was an A&R representative of CBS. I don't recall actually hearing that song, to be honest, but... um, yeah, once again, um, we were probably a little naive and 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 weren't ready for it either. So we probably needed another, you know, three or four years, I guess, of of playing around and um, and uh, making the band a lot more professional sounding than what we were at that particular point in time. And this was the period where Barry Andrews came onto the scene, wasn't it? Uh, we had a keyboard player before Andrews, believe it or not. Oh. One of the many. Uh, uh, Jonathan Perkins was his name, and he was with us for a while after the Cartner incident. Uh, once again, he decided that he he decided to leave um, and pursue his own band, a band called Stadium Dogs. Um, he, he went off and joined those, and then we ended up with Barry Andrews in the band. So, um, I mean, the nucleus of the band, Andy Collin and myself, remained the same all the way through it. We always sort of had a bit of difficulty with the fourth member at that point. This was the period where you did get signed to Virgin. So how did that happen? Because there was no lack of interest from labels in in those early years. Yeah, well, um, once again, we sent um, uh, demos up to uh, London in in various pubs and one thing and another there, and and hopefully they they fell into the right hands. And uh, we managed to start getting some gigs in the London area. Uh, once Barry sort of joined the band, um, it really started to come together. And um, there was plenty of venues in London back in those days in the early 70s. Uh, well, I say early 70s, uh, I should say 76, 77, that type of period. Um, there was heaps of places to play in London. And uh, fortunately for us, uh, we, we played quite a few of them and people were being signed up. Sometimes I'll cook and none, none, none. 
great early singles of XTC next this is pop and I've read in terms of one of the inspirations behind that track was you were in the thick of the punk scene which was very sort of popular at the time and it was a, a real statement so yeah. in terms of what you were aiming for is that whatever the the shade or label that was put onto the material ultimately it's pop music exactly that, that. I think uh, Andy was very uh, clever in that regard I don't think we were ever a punk band and um, some of the reaction of some of the venues that we played, like the Roxy, would um, make that pretty clear. You know, we weren't a punk band in the, in the sense of the word like mm. Sham 69 or Generation X or The Damned or any of those type of bands. Uh, we had a little bit more of, a, of an angular sort of uh, side to it. But uh, Partridge always felt that we he wanted to be in a pop band. So um, hence the song. And it's interesting in those years is that you recorded albums with John Leckie, but say for, for that single, This Is Pop, you're with Mutt Lang, now renowned producer. So yeah. how did that sort of compare? And was it actually a case of reflecting on some of that album material and either you or the label said, well, we need something that really sort of zips a bit more? It was a purely a decision by Virgin Records. By the time that uh, sort of came out, as a single, we hadn't had any success working with John Leckie at that point in time. So I think uh, Virgin sort of really wanted to get in a, a single-minded producer. Um, I mean, likewise with um, Are You Receiving Me as well. That was another song that um, came out around that time there that uh, Martin Rushant produced. So, And also there was another song later on that Phil Wayman produced. So Virgin were 
crazy about sort of getting a hit single. And unfortunately, John Leckie, to his credit, could only record the songs that were, were written at the time. And if there wasn't a single amongst them, that wasn't his fault. Although um, Virgin sort of was, you know, freaking out over trying to get this single out. And I think that sort of reflects on when we got a new producer for the third album in pursuit of, of single success, which um, fortunately in that, that record came uh, Making Plans for Nigel, which was a reasonably successful single. So that sort of changed things a little bit. But as I say, I mean, it could have still been a hit there if John Leckie had produced it, but unfortunately the song wasn't written then. Yes. mentioned are you receiving me and and that was a period or an example where sometimes you didn't have the single on the album but they were released quite close together but yeah. they were separate entities yeah i mean if we ever sounded sort of punk i suppose that sort of song probably probably was a little bit more like it you know um that and neon shuffle which was an old song from from way back as well so um there's a little bit of a a connection there to the punk thing, I guess. But uh, in order to get the gigs back in those days, everybody had to play sort of more or less 100 miles an hour. You know, I mean, that was just the trend at the time. But uh, deep down, XTC was always going to go somewhere else. 
And as the later albums prove, um, yeah, it got sort of quite orchestral and pastoral and in some sort of senses. You were so prolific in the period you were in XTC and around the time of Go Too, there must have been quite a lot of pressure on the band to just keep coming up with material. Very much so. And um, I think once again, Andy sort of felt the pressure a little bit to try and come up with a single. You must bear in mind that at that particular point in time, we were we were touring a hell of a lot as well. We were doing a lot of gigs there, uh, trying to promote those first two albums. So, um, yeah, I think, I think that perhaps Go To as a record suffered as a result of... Um, Having to, I mean, I think it's interesting that John Bon Jovi said one time that uh, he had nine years to write his first album and nine months to write the second one. And uh, it's very true in as much that uh, Andy had these songs sorted together there, but didn't have much time to prepare the second record, which um, is, is, a, is a fate uh, that every band suffers from, I feel. Mm. Barry was uh, becoming more confident as a, a songwriter, but obviously you're already had Colin and, and Andy and, and quite a defined sound. So was there a bit of a, a tension there and, and things could be a bit lopsided in terms of that? Well, very much so. I personally don't think that uh, the the two songs that um, Barry contributed to the Go uh, 2 record sat very well with the rest of the... This, I mean, it seemed to me that we had too many songwriters in the band. You look at most bands there and there's usually a collaboration between two um, at most and um, in our particular case Colin wrote his songs and sung his and Andy wrote his and sung his there didn't seem to be much room for another songwriter to be honest and uh, that pressure ultimately I guess uh, led to the exit of, uh, of Barry from the group <laughs>
next we have the rhythm from a, a John Peel session from 1978. And the role of John Peel as a, a champion for the group must have been really, really great fit for you. Well, we were very fortunate that John Peel came to one of the many gigs that we played in London. I think it was um, upstairs at Ronnie Scott's club. He used to go in there from time to time there and, and watch a little bit of local talent. And um, we were fortunate enough to be there one one night when he was there. And um, we got an invite to um, go and do a session for him. And we also got a session as a result of that with the Kid Jensen's show, which was a good show back in those days as well, that helped unsigned at those that particular point in time, I believe, uh, unsigned bands. And uh, John Peel was a real champion at that. And we wouldn't be the band signed by Virgin Records if it hadn't been for that experience working for John Peel. So we owed him a lot. May he rest in peace. Absolutely. And it's amazing the uh, the amount of material you did record for, it just for the BBC in, in those those few years, this hours and hours of material. So again, even more stuff. Yeah, there was some studio stuff done there at Made Avail. And uh, also we recorded a whole live album, I believe, in London that uh, Bill Price sort of uh, was the engineer on that. Um, uh, and what a great engineer he was. Once again, he's sadly not no, no longer with us. Red up! 
so by the time of Life Begins at the Hop, Barry had left on keyboards and then the wonderfully talented Dave Gregory came on the scene on guitar. Yeah, I mean, there was only one, once Barry left, there was only um, one name that we could all think of. Uh, once again, it, it was nice to have somebody from the local area just to make uh, rehearsals and so on and so forth a lot easier to uh, arrange rather than people sort of coming from miles around. Uh, and Dave Gregory was a guy that we all knew, played in local bands, and um, we always admired him as a guitar player and didn't really realise how good a keyboard player he was either. But, um, yeah, so I, I think Dave jumped on the chance, knowing full well that we were signed. I don't think he would have been interested in it had we not been signed. But um, we'd already sort of uh, done most of that hard work there and, and we were about to go in and do our third record. So um, he sort of landed on his feet there, I guess, but uh, certainly made a, an immense difference to the sound of the band. And that connection to Swindon, your hometown, you've really stayed true to your home roots, all of you. Yeah, well, I, I migrated to Australia for a fair period of time once I left the band, but um yeah, I, I guess it's as good a place as anywhere to be. It's not London, it's not Manchester, but um, you find that anybody with, um, I'm not suggesting that we've got money, but anybody that's got money doesn't mind living in Wiltshire, to be quite honest. There's some quite nice places around the, the joint, and uh, we're only an hour and a half, or, well, it depends on the on the traffic and the M4 motorway, but we are in close proximity to London and Heathrow Airport, so we're not that far away. Do you think that there was a, a an unfair or perceived issue that the fact that you weren't from London or a sexy town or Manchester or whatever? Absolutely, mate. We were a bunch considered to be a bunch of sweet bashers, basically, <laughs> and uh, not taken particularly seriously. But um, you know, don't don't forget the trogs were from uh, I believe it was Andover or somewhere of that nature as well. So you know, the rock and roll business and and uh, as individuals. You know, Richie Blackmore was from Western Supermare, for heaven's sake. You know, so um, you don't have to come from London or Liverpool or Manchester or Glasgow to be um, like a rock and roller. I mean, people come from all over the place. I mean, Robert Fripp's from down that way, too. So, yeah, yeah. And things were, were slowly building. Life Begins at the Hop was well into the top 75 and you were building things up live and BBC sessions. So there was a, a momentum that was starting to build. Absolutely. And that was on the strength of a lot of live work because that was the way to get the word out. Because if you're not getting played on the radio, as uh, most of the bands were, because we didn't really have that single at that particular point in time, although it was in the pipeline, the Nigel thing, uh, we didn't have that single success. So the only way to get the word out was to sort of gig like crazy, which is what the band did.
and as you say, making plans for Niger was the first really, really big single. So that was a, a huge leap and uh, must have given you guys a, a lot of confidence by then. Well, it's nice to know that, um, you know, your efforts are being uh, paying off. Um, you know, had we not had this uh, a, a su- successful single on that third album, I think Virgin Records would have started looking harder at our contract, thinking, well, maybe we've got a dud here, because it was all about getting hit singles, really. Uh, fortunately for us, it was uh, it was going to be three strikes and you're out, I think, if, uh, if that third album hadn't have, uh, you know, given birth to a hit single. And Top of the Pops. Yes, well, that goes with it. I mean, once you're on there, you're into millions of households on a Thursday night. And, um, yeah, that all helps to sell, provided you do a reasonable job of it. Miming, that is. (laughs) And then the gigs. Even more people come to the gigs. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, on the strength of that, even if they've – as soon as when they've heard that on the radio, then, uh, you know, they they start to pick up on the words and, um, you know, you're starting to make a little bit of sense then. And one of the special things about a band as opposed to a, a solo artist is that even though you may have a songwriter for a song, you all contribute to the material. And Making Plans for Niger was a brilliant case of Colin coming in and the band and yourself starting to shape the actual recorded version. Yeah. Um, I mean, as we, we when we had, that song was in its embryonic stage, it was pretty straightforward, um, hi hat, snare, bass, drum sort of rhythm, you know. And um, we tried to make things a little bit more interesting by changing things around slightly, giving it, I don't know, a sort of like a heavier drum feel. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it was quite different, I guess, to whatever else was about at the time. Because I mean, you look at a lot of uh, records in the past, like, um, you know, the Glitter Band, for, for example, they had a lot of uh, heavyweight sort of drum type things. There, The Dave Clark Five springs to mind as well that were very drum orientated, uh, bits and pieces, those sort of things. Uh, and very sort of like uh, Tom or orientated sort of uh, tribal drum rhythms. And I think that's one of the things that we thought uh, could make a, a possible single. The great thing about making plans for Nigel not only is it a timeless song, but in my formative years, we're in the, the 90s and making plans for Nigel could have been part of the so-called Britpop era and was, would still have been a hit. So it was ahead of its time in a way. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, in the band that um, Steve Tilling and I are playing with at the moment, the EXTC uh, band, um, you know, I mean, it's one of the ones that um, we play very later on in the set and uh it's it's very well well um, well liked and uh, even even today. So and that's God knows how many years later was it 30, forty years or something? I don't know. Probably more than that. But um, yeah, it's it's uh, it stood the test of time. And and to be fair and honest, um, it doesn't bore me doing it. Um, you know, I still think think the the song still stands up, which is um, you know you can't say about that about all songs. No, no. Seems to have weathered the storm, I think, you know, and and it still sounds okay. More than okay.
He must be happy. He must be happy. He must be happy in his world. the rejected single version of Towers of London which is from the excellent Court of Many Cupboards box set and the final version was from the Black Sea album and that was um, an album that again saw the band continue that rise in momentum and you you were kind of at your peak. Yeah, Uh, once again we we used the same uh, production uh, combination of Steve Lillywatt and Hugh Padgham um, that was that was uh, such an enjoyable session on the drums and wires thing. We were fortunate to get them back to uh, to have another go. 
There wasn't the hit single off of that one. I think Generals and Majors was on that record. I think it was reasonably successful, but not quite to the extent of the other. But, uh, you know, I mean, that's 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 the music business, I guess. And Hugh Padgham, very notable in relation to the, the drum sound. And on that Black Sea album, you can start to hear that a bit more of a, an 80s style sound that he's associated with. Absolutely, yeah. A fant- one of the be- world's best engineers. What are you hitting on on Towers of London? Is it the sort of clangy? Yeah, that's a fire extinguisher. It was um, lying around uh, the the studio there where we were recording, and uh, as I understand it, it's a fire extinguisher. I'm hitting it with a stick of some sort. (laughs) So it'd just be a case of whatever's lying around and seeing if you could get a a sound out of it sometimes. Well, Andy was very experimental on anything that was um, lying around the place there. He liked to tinker and bonk and plonk and all that. And uh, to the extent where perhaps there's some unnecessary things on these records that uh, in the heat of the moment probably sound like a good idea, but on reflection uh, can uh, sometimes be a little irritating. We've discussed the the incredible live schedule that you had and, and touring and, and that sort of thing. Was this the, the time when... Andy was starting to get sort of fatigued by the whole thing. I think so. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, it, it was a question of um, work overload, really, like the touring, the constant touring and on that touring thing, make, write songs, record songs and go out and play them. You're on that sort of constant treadmill and uh, your arrangement with the record company was that has to take place uh, an album per year. And uh, we weren't in a position to sort of like say, well, hang on, let's sort of like have a rest for a couple of years or or, or 12 months at least and uh, try and recharge the batteries. I mean, that just never really, really happened. It was just sort of like strike while the iron's hot because you never know when it's going to all fall in a heap. So um, that was sort of like basically air management's attitude towards it. You'd been on tour in America with the police. Again, great experience, but tiring. Well, absolutely. I mean, we went to Australia. We went all over Europe um, on several occasions, went to the States, I don't know how many times, Uh, Canada as well. Yeah, so the touring became further away. I mean, it's, it's one thing to sort of tour Britain and that, where you can go from one end of the country to the other in a day. But when you start sort of getting onto planes on uh, different continents and, and all that, uh, yeah, you, you, you seem to be in, in a permanent state of momentum. And um, yeah, it sounds glamorous, but uh, it's very sort of a, a tiring thing where you in amongst all that, you're trying to get eight hours sleep and, it's, and you're not always getting that. <laughs>
another huge single with Senses working overtime and, and that really, really, just like Nigel, it was a huge hit then and, and continues to be very popular. Yeah, well, surprisingly, that was Andy's first sort of decent single, I, I guess. Um, up until that time, he wrote Are You Receiving Me, which wasn't received particularly well. Another song, Wait Till Your Boat Goes Down, with produced by Phil Wayman. Once again, it never never did very, probably the, the worst-selling thing that we ever had. So it wasn't looking good from Andy's single songwriting. Uh, hence, later on, he came out with my failed music career uh, <laughs> or songwriting career. Yeah, so, I mean, he was pretty thankful that uh, at last he got one over the line, you know, which was, um, I think it was top 10, I think. A really interesting dynamic between Andy and Colin in relation to the songwriting, because they didn't really collaborate with each other, but they independently brought great material and must have spurred each other on, ultimately. Yeah, I mean, I think they used to try and complement each other's songs as best they could uh, without stepping on anybody's toes. It's... um, I was a little bit personal when, um, you know, an individual writes a song. It's like a baby of theirs, you know, and um, they don't like it messed around with too much. So, um, yeah, it's, it can get a little sensitive. And in relation to English settlement, for me, you've got greater ambition, which is kind of like almost your, your Sergeant Pepper, but then you've got the broad depth and the volume of content a bit white album so so english settlement is almost like your pepper and white album rolled into one it's very ambitious yeah i mean um andy always wanted to try and he always admired david bowie and the way he used to bring out a new fresh thing every time he never stood still bowie and uh partridge was very much uh impressed with that type of thing and he he felt that once, once the album was done, and this this was one of the reasons I I believe another reason why he, he wanted to um, give up the uh, live thing was uh, because he didn't want to replicate the same songs night after night. He became a bit of an artist.
some fantastic tracks on there like Jason and the Argonauts and the power of your drumming really gets to shine and, and not enough has been said about the drumming and, and the the impact on, on the group and, and the sound of the records. Yeah, um, funnily enough, that is a song that we, EXTC band, are now, now playing live. So, um, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that one, to be quite honest. But, um, yeah, we're making a good fist of that. I think, as it stands at the moment, we've played it in the last three gigs, I think we've done. And uh, it's going down very well. So we're trying to freshen the setup ourselves as well, not only for ourselves, but also for the audience, because uh, some of the people are, are going to several gigs and um, it's only fair that, uh, they, that they shouldn't be um, sort of bored with the same stuff night after night. It's a great example of the fact that you don't overplay as a drummer, but when the song needs a bit extra, you'll do it. It strikes a, a really good balance. Yeah, I think... Um, Guys that I always admire were people like uh, Simon Kirk from Free. I mean, he used to leave a lot of air, what I describe as air. He didn't play all the time, and it allowed the song to breathe. And I think um, those are the great drummers. It's knowing when to play and when not to play. Uh, I wish I was as good as those guys, but um, uh, I th those were my inspirations. And um, I think... You know, do enough there to it. Does it enhance the song, and and or are you getting in the way of things? You know, so I sort of like try, try to look at it a little bit more um, maturely, I guess, uh, during that period of time, rather than just sort of like slam bam, bash them and thrash them type of thing. There, trying to, you know, I think I think we all became better musicians and and better songwriters as time went on, and we started to to listen more.
Had you moved to Australia before the recording of Mummer, or were you actually full-time over here in the UK? I was still in the UK during the Mummer situation there, yeah. I don't know. That was a strange old time. Andy, at that point in time, had decided he didn't want to play live anymore, and I liked playing live. So, I mean, you know, being in a band to me, that's what it's all about. Um, I always sort of felt that the recorded sort of things is as um, as good and necessary as it, as it is. Um, I, I found um, the live playing was what I was about. And as a result of him not wanting to play live, that, that opportunity was denied to me. So um, I thought, well, I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, you know, once again, I was—I think I was 26 or 27 when that took place and probably not didn't think it through probably as much as what I should have done. But um, and, and to be honest, I didn't think that the songs written for the Mummer album were as strong as the previous three albums. I think it was a point where Andy needed a rest to recharge the batteries and, and you know, I, I could see the Mama record not being a commercial success as English Settlement. I just didn't think it was as good, the songs were as good. I still stand by that, knowing the fact that uh, Mama didn't sell that well. Um, I mean, I'm only on two songs or that thing there, but I just didn't think that... Um, in fairness to Andy, I suppose he wanted to sort of move on from 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 the English settlement thing and leave that where it was. But um, I didn't think it was a step in the right direction, and I don't think commercially it was. I mean, it certainly never never spawned a single. But you were on Wonderland, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. That and Beating of Hearts, I think, was the other song I was on on that record, which I didn't think were bad songs. Um, the rest of it that sort of came up there, I thought, well, I don't know. Um, there are albums out there that have, have, have sold on the strength of one song and the rest of it's rubbish. I didn't want to sort of have, be part of a, a thing there. I thought, well, okay, is there only one decent song on this record? Um, you know, it was starting to get to a point there. I thought, well, all those records up to that point there, or the, the, the big three anyway, the Drums and Wires, Black Sea, English Settlement things, I mean, they had several good songs on them you know they just weren't all on the strength of one song and i i, I didn't think it was very uh, a very strong record mama of what was coming up that was my thought so it must have been exacerbated by the fact that you weren't getting hardly any money from virgin despite the success and then obviously if you don't have the live gigs what yeah. what can you do so well absolutely mate <laughs> what are you going to do when you were originally signed with Virgin, you signed up for quite a number of albums, so you couldn't really negotiate, renegotiate, could That's you? That's right. I think I think it, it, we made a stupid mistake of signing for six albums, but, I mean, we weren't actually signed to Virgin Records, in all fairness. We were signed to Alidor, which was Ian Reid, the manager, and he was signed to Virgin Records, but we were signed to him to produce six records. We thought, yeah, our future's solved here but we were still on a crap deal of about four percent or something so really we should have signed for perhaps one maybe two albums and then been in a position there to renegotiate and got a better deal but uh <laughs> that's crap management for you yeah because you might have had an ad advances but actually you spent all your time paying off advances with the money so then you didn't you're not earning that's right and the manager had the money crazy yeah, I know. I'm, I'm shaking my head as well <laughs> People can't, people can't see that, but we're both shaking our head. <laughs> <laughs>
I've heard that when you went to Australia, and I guess it's not an easy thing to do, you didn't bring any drums or anything. No, I just went with a suitcase, basically. I, I was in love and um, I got I got married out there and uh, we had a child. Uh, that was him on the phone just now, by the way. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I, I just needed to get away from, from, from all this, to be honest. No particular plan, just... No, just start again. And I didn't know what I was going to do. You'd had some sort of, did some sort of demos with Ice House. That That's were a, correct. A yeah. big Australian yeah. group. Yeah. Um, I did some demos with them. Um, I had a a good friend of mine out there. Ray Hearn was the agent that took us to Australia on a couple of occasions to tour out there. We became good friends. And he helped me get some work down in Australia there with those demos and, and some of that type of thing. And eventually um, ended up playing in a band called Dragon. But uh, that was purely because I had to, a, a wife and child to feed. So I had to do something. We've next got Wilder World, which is from the Body and the Beat album. And that was, I think you were on a, at least one live album plus that record. And that song, very commercial for the 80s. Yeah, they were very much a, a poppy sort of band. Yeah, and um, they were a big band in the mid-70s. Um, I joined in probably 83 or 84 or whenever it was. And, um, yeah, I mean, we, we had reasonable success there and played some big shows out there. And, uh, yeah, it was a bit of fun, but um, I was probably the wrong fit. I was probably, you know, it probably wasn't the right band for me or them. And so you left music ultimately, didn't you? Yeah, I got a bit disillusioned with it. There was a couple of other things offered on the table. Uh, but um, I thought, well, <sighs> I'd, I'd got a bit disillusioned with the music business, to be quite frank. And um, I thought it was probably time to give it a rest. And I gave it a rest for a long time.
And it was coming back to the UK that got you back into music. Is that right? Pretty much, yeah. Um, you know, the honeymoon in Australia was well and truly over by then. And um, I ended up getting divorced. Uh, I came back to the UK. Colin Maldin contacted me and said, look, I'm doing this solo project. Do you want to get involved in it? And in the end, it became him and I doing the TCNI project. And that's where it all sort of started again, um, second time around in the UK. But once again, <laughs> disappointed the fact that he didn't want to continue on anymore. So that was another uh, another disappointment in the um, in the long long story. But as I say, Steve Tilling and I decided that we had so much fun sort of doing that thing. Then I was back in the saddle again, and I, I wanted to continue on for us because um, it took me a long time to get back to sort of match practice, I guess, um, or match fitness, I should say. And I thought, well, I don't want to let this go. So we just sort of kept plugging along and um, and here we are now. It's that TCNI material that Colin brought was uh, really, really good stuff and, and, and fits very well in, in the XTC canon or, or, or family. Songs like Scatter Me have yeah. quite a, an emotional punch to them as well. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, um, Colin seems to have this thing about death just at the moment when he's singing about stuff. But, um, yeah, he, he's uh, he's very emotional with his songwriting, Colin. And, um, yeah, it was fun to do. That was uh, We enjoyed it. We spent a lot of time together in his shed uh, putting that thing together. And, um, yeah, uh, would have been nice to have done an album, I guess. But um, we really sort of thought we'd test the waters with, a, with an EP and see how that went.
recorded the live uh, stuff as well and uh, there was fortunately enough material there to put an, an album out for that so I'm glad that that got uh, got some sort of recognition because there was a lot of effort went into that absolutely so to close we, we've got grass from the uh, Naked Flames album live at the Swindon Art Centre and what was it like playing it's a real sort of grounding for the current XTC shows in that you had to sort of get a band together, choose what material, finally doing what you were really feel at home doing, which is bringing the music to uh, people in a live setting. That's right. And um, Steve Tilling and, and I decided that um, we, we picked what we, we considered to be the best of the material that we'd already learned up until that point to do the TC and I project, kept most of that stuff and uh, filled the rest of it out um, with about 15 of uh, arguably Andy's better songs, you know, that uh, we considered to be okay. You know, you can't please everybody. Uh, when we when we play now, people come up and say, oh, you never played so-and-so, so-and-so, you never played this, that, and that. But when you look at it, you know, there's, there's 10 albums or 12 albums to choose from over a 20-odd-year period. And you're only up there for a maximum of two hours. <laughs> so you can't play it all. And some of it's very difficult to replicate as well, because as I say, we don't use a keyboard. And later on, um, a lot of the songs there were very dependent on keyboards. You were actually in XTC and its uh, predecessors for, for longer than many people think, because you were starting playing in the early 70s. So it was the best part of a decade. Yeah, I think it was I don't know seventy two or seventy four when we um, when we first got got to go. So yeah, I suppose it was at least ten years. Uh, although <laughs> it felt like about twenty years, but um, yeah, it was quite a long time. And um, yeah, I mean we're we're still all friends. And um, you know once once you've had that type of experience with uh, being in a band or or being in a football team for that matter, and, and having 
uh, you know, reasonable success and, 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 and so on and so forth and having traveled around and, uh, you know, you've seen people naked, uh, it's the, it's a warts and all thing there. And it's something that, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a big part of my life. It does very much feel like a family in that you'll always have that bond with the, the time that you had together. And, and you're someone who spans all some of the differences between certain band members and, and have a, a really good role in that. Yeah, well, I, I still have a good relationship with the other three. The other three don't seem to have as good a relationship with, with each other as as. Perhaps it's because I was out of it for such a long time and um, they continued on without me. And I don't quite know, I'm not privy to know what went on during that period of time. Um, so, yeah, I, I can't answer for them. But um, under the circumstances that I did leave the group, I never, ever resigned from the group. Let's, let's make that clear. Um, I was always sort of a, a non-participant of the band. But I don't know what sort of really went on uh, during that period of time there when they weren't a touring band and were just a recording band. So um, I don't know some of the difficulties that may or may not have taken place during that period. And looking forward, you've got a string of dates in, in the US in October and November with EXTC. Yeah. That you must be yeah. really looking forward to getting over to the US because first time around, you must have had some great memories as well. Well, I mean, we were there in um, March and April this year as well. So, um, I mean, I was surprised that um, we managed to get an agent and get people interested in this in light of the fact that I was just the drummer in the band and not a principal songwriter. So I thought, you know, we went over there then thinking, you know, this may be the one and only chance we get to do this thing. But uh, it was very well received and... Uh, to the extent that we're going back again in October and November. And I believe we're also going back in March next year. So the way we've been received is, is arguably better over there than it is in the UK. And you're potentially looking to introduce new material into the group as well. Well, Steve and I were working today through, um, we've recorded a lot of this stuff, these live shows that we're doing, and we're going to sift through that, which is very painstaking, trying to find out whether we could put a, a, a live cd sort of together for for the stuff that we're doing but we're also in the throngs of uh looking at two two original songs at the moment um but uh the main focus at this point in time is sort of like this touring thing and getting this american thing going and this uh, yeah there's there's not a lot of time to, to work on the original stuff just at the moment but that is our intention is to put something original out something fresh that's fantastic to hear Terry, it's been a huge pleasure to talk to you today and um, one of my favourite groups of all time. And so to speak to you is absolutely fantastic. And I hope to be able to see you if you come up to Yorkshire. It'd be nice to see you too, Jason, and thank you very much for uh, spending the time to talk to me. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks very much, Jason.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.